Welcome back to Better Business with Nato. That's me, and that's what this episode is all about. In this episode, Oscar Van Hoys is going to be interviewing me for a change. That sounds kind of different, but it was a great idea, and I'm really excited to share with you all about my career journey. The decisions, the ins and outs, the trials and tribulations of what has happened in my 13-year career, all of which has led to the start of better business. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this unique episode about me, Nathan Ho. So today, John. Um, yeah, it's already on. So it's today, we're we going to reverse the roles. Right? This is going to uh, be interesting. It's, it, th- this is the first podcast talking about yourself. That's right. That's so funny how... I don't know if it's like... Mm, you know, because a lot of podcasts are like interviews, right? Like one-on-one fireside chats. I never thought to do this, and I and it was such a good idea. Why? why, why I mean, I know it's a good idea, but... Well, I mean, because I noticed this, right? Because I've done quite a few interviews. Right. And as a host, you, it would be, let's say, impolite to talk about yourself all the time. Mm, you yeah, just true. don't do that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's probably why when I started getting to it, I never meant for this podcast, Better Business, to be about, like, me. Nor was it about, like, so that, I don't know. I, I, what I'm trying to say is I feel as if I... Naturally floated into this stru- structure and style of an interview, and I thought I was going to post. I actually thought I was going to post more things about different articles that I see and just me talking. Yeah, because I remem- remember remember that, that at yeah. the start. Yeah, actually, your first two podcasts, yeah. you were just tol- talking. I think that was without a guest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One was about the future of well-being. And the other one was um, um, how to pitch. Um, and so after that, though, it, I started getting guests. Well, you're my first guest ever had. And then it continued moving on and guest after guest. But then I realized the value of having guests, too. Because I, and I also found that I'm a really, I love asking good questions. I love asking questions, right? And so that helped me to carve out my own style. And I like talking to people. Gives me a good uh, opportunity to meet new people and have new perspectives, right? Instead of me just blabbing on, because a lot of people t- tell me that I just talk a lot. Well, my wife does, <laughs> Patty. And, that's, that's, and you interview your yeah, wife as well. I did, and I'm gonna do more. So similar to what we're doing with the drinking dialogue with you, to have different parts because. Um, I always thought that, so ESG was a topic because she's an awesome sustainability consultant. And having her on was quite natural because I always hang out with her, right? So she's like, hey, why don't I just do a podcast with you? She's like, but what? <laughs> the, well, the thing, it's, it, it may sound natural to do it because can you live together. That doesn't mean it's a wise decision to do it together. Right, I mean, yeah. there's a difference. Cause if I, I mean, uh, I've spoken with Michelle, my wife, and we've talked about it. But I, yeah, I don't know if we can you do never, a podcast really? together. I, well, we tried it as like a... So the, fain, the main thing that I said to Patty was, let's just try it. 
let's record it. Let's try it. Let's have a conversation. Let's kind of be like somewhat serious about it. And if we don't like it when we hear back or like we're crashing and burning and can't stop laughing and just can't even look at each other while talking and that, then we don't have to play it. Like we don't have to publish it, right? It'll just be like, oh, let's just press delete. And in the end, when we heard about it, heard it back, she obviously is always very conscious about her own voice. So she's like, no, don't play back. Do not play back to me. I do not want to hear it. But I felt as though the content was really, really good. And we kind of prepared for it. Also, it was a, it was easy because it was off the back of an interview she had done. So she had been featured on one of her friends' podcasts, um, not podcasts, sorry, like a show um, that he helps with uh, called Density. And that's like a real estate property sort of uh, company. Um, his name is Darren Wong. Shout out to Darren. I think it was on Dar- uh, Density. But anyway, he had featured her and they talked about sustainability and ESG in regards to uh, real estate industry. So she had some material she had already prepped in advance, so it made it easier to sort of recycle that bit and come on my podcast. Okay, hard. well, let, let's take a step back. Yeah. We just rolled into this, and by the way, today it's uh, Thursday, not as crazy as Monday, but we still have a bottle of uh, wine on the table. It's a, a white wine. We actually had to look up exactly where it came from. Um, Alsace. Alsace, for those people who don't know where it France, is. France, northern France, besides Switzerland. Well. Um, and it's called Martin Zahn Alsace Pinot Gris. Yeah, it's a uh, fairly easy white chilled wine because it's really hot t- today. Yes. A little bit cooler than the ben. previous days, but uh, it's a been pretty bit better. Hot. Let's do a little clink so oh, yeah, that we know that. Uh, you can, there you go. You can hear that. Right, so the, the, uh, let's take a step back because explain to me who Nathan is. Why does it seem so difficult to answer this question? Nathan is... Do you want me to speak in a third person like this? Nathan is... You can talk about fourth person or first (laughs) person or whatever you feel comfortable with. But get the mic a little bit closer. Nathan is currently um, an entrepreneur. Nathan is a loving husband. Nathan is a loyal friend to a lot of people. Uh, Nathan is also a connector and very inquisitive and curious personality. Nathan also is a twin brother. And Nathan is a guy who likes to do new things. And and so what about in terms of the business context? So if you were to... well. Describe what you do to people who have no clue what Nathan does. I would say currently right now what I do is I'm the co-founder and CEO of Bayvita. That is a modern wellness consultancy. And we help right now at this moment corporate companies improve their wellness and well-being culture at work. And why are we doing corporates? Because we feel as though, well, for me, I had a corporate background. So that's kind of where I'm used to. And we feel as though that we can make a big impact in the corporate industry because a lot of 
wellness and well-being um, issues arise in the workplace. So we're looking to, I am looking to make an impact on people's lives through this route. So if you, let, let's start with the corporate backgrounds that you have, right? Because, um, and I want to weave that into the subject that I was, I think I sent you a, a message yesterday. I said, well, I'm quite intrigued by um, leadership and proximity, right? So you, when we, so you come actually from a, a corporate institutional um, background. So describe me what, what that is, which area industry that you came from. Yeah. Um, I loved sharing this because it's quite easy in regards to, if we put it as a story, um, I have three chapters of my career. The first chapter was when I first embarked into the new land of Hong Kong. A long time ago, far, far away. And, and you came from? Toronto. So I was born and raised in Canada, in Toronto, Ontario. For most of the people who are an older millennial generation, we call it T-Dot. Um, for the newer generation who uh, has made the new name famous from Jersey Drake, the rap artist, it's called now The Six. But now... That's for current times. Back in the day, whoever is in Canada will know it's from T-Dot. So I was born and raised there, made the move to Hong Kong, and I my first job that I landed was in the coffee business. So the first chapter of my uh, career journey is in coffee. So that's why I love coffee. And that was with Pacific Coffee, the second largest retail chain in Hong Kong, next to Starbucks. Back when I was in Pacific Coffee, we were, you know, one, number one, probably number two. But, you know, when I left, they lost a little bit of momentum there. I'm just joking. But um, that was my first thing that I did. And that was retail expansion and then B2B corporate sales. And, and, and how did you, I mean, you just roll into the coffee business? I mean, it's, yeah. it sounds very illogical to me, maybe very logical to you. But. Very. Um, so it was, uh, I think with most, a lot of people in Hong Kong or expats coming back, coming to Hong Kong, a lot of opportunities just come by chance. And this one in particular was through um, an auntie. So my mom and I said, hey, listen, we're gonna, I'm gonna go to Hong Kong. Well, you gotta find a job before you go. And um, a few connections, uh, hop, skip, and I was introduced to um, my then boss, Andrew Wong. Uh, I'm still in touch with him. He's like my big brother. Um, probably one of the best, most influential bosses I've ever had. Um, and uh, he basically had a, we had a two hour telephone interview while I was still in Canada. And the main, the main reason why I got the job, I would say is because I, <laughs> I was, a, I said, he asked me, so what football team do you follow? Do you like? I think we talked for a few hours, an hour or so already. And then he just, he just said to me, so this is a really important question that I have next. <laughs> like oh shit okay focus what football club do you support and obviously for him being in hong kong we, a lot of times they say football is in soccer right and i made the mis i did not make the mistake so i said the football club that i support and i could only think of one which i did kind of support i'm not huge i play more than i support manchester united and i said those words and he said you got the job <laughs> 
So, I mean, we, we talked about business. We talked about sports. I was a fresh grad. So, you know, there's only so much you can talk about, right? And so that was my ticket in. He said, hey, listen, Nathan, like, I thanks for taking the time. If you want to, you know, work and start your career off here in Pacific Coffee, we're going to be a very quick, fast-paced new department. Um, don't expect to be treated differently. I want to treat you locally so that you get the, the full experience. And that's what I went in for. So I did that and I stayed for six years. So that was the first chapter of my career in, in corporate business life, mm. which was which was extremely challenging, but also very rewarding at the same time. Okay. So and what was next after that? The so next how after, you, yeah. At what moment you thought, okay, I had enough coffee, I need to move on? Yeah, so after six years, I had been, I think, um, so Pacific Coffee had um, undergone tr- a bit of transformation. At the time when I joined, they were owned by a um, Chevalier, and that was a listed Hong Kong company. And then probably around th- my third, fourth year in, they were uh, in discussion talks and acquired by a big state-owned enterprise called China Resources stayed on uh, from mainland China. And that was a huge, huge change. And so the whole company underwent a big shift. Um, I was able to stay on, and then I kind of rose up the ranks. And But after six years, I realized, hey, listen, you know, I'm curious by nature. I want to try something different. And to go to Asia's financial hub, Hong Kong, <clears throat> only to do coffee not to say coffee is bad by any means but you know i was remiss to say that you know i should tr- maybe try you know something finance related and that's what i did so i did my i studied the, the main catalyst was i got it accepted into my executive mba program the ivy business school um it's a canadian school part of western university where i went but in asia and that was an executive mba and i was much the youngest guy in the class um, got in, I got to understand what that was like and broaden my horizons. And then I then made a foray into saying, okay, I'm going to go into finance. So then I meant I, I was, you know, playing football indoor, had a few friends, set a network. And then when I, as soon as I thought to make a shift, I had talked to a few buddies of mine and they were in the finance field. And one of which was Christoph Burrell. And he was, um, uh, a manager in Merger Market. Merger Market is a financial intelligence and data platform. Um, and he said, you know, you should do the do a business development job. Someone there's a role in a department that I know they're hiring for. Had a few interviews and got in, and that was my first foray into this next second chapter of my career, um, doing business development sales for um, financial publications and events. And that was pretty interesting. It was like a soft approach, but I had totally shifted from a 100% local, pretty much local colleague and employee base in Pacific Coffee to a fully international type of a multinational company in merger market because they were a global company at the time. So very smart people. And not to say that, just very different types. So financially, very, very smart individuals especially when you're a publication data platform as well too. You know, they've got to know their shit. So then the um, interesting thing, well, I mean, of course, so in Hong Kong, right, uh, it is very finance focused and everyone seems to be 
associated, at least related to it. Um, it, it I, the, the job that you just described, right, selling financial um, products or services, it's probably one of the hardest jobs in 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 Hong Kong because it's it is very 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 saturated. Totally. So, what was your secret? The secret source of getting food in the door? Oh man, um, I think where I had a really good amount of training was for the people that I work with, Navit and Adrian. They really they said, "So you're a sales guy, huh?" I was like, "Yeah." Yeah, for coffee machines and beans. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, that was a different type of a sales. But they introduced me to consultative sales, like much more nuanced of approach. There was a, we did literally a boot camp. Um, Adrian and I, we did a boot camp and he just put me through the ringer. Just memorize this understand that research these elements of finance know what you're talking about like know the differences the nuances in private equity venture capital investment banking asset management all of these terms which are totally new to me and i had to do that and what what i ended up doing was i you know socialized what i knew best so i socialized internally and i got to meet all obviously all the colleagues through um social events through playing football we had a football team and got to know them and they were all product specialists so i i would talk to editors i would talk to specialists i would talk to the guys and and girls who really knew their stuff and said let's have coffee let's have lunch let me sit beside you as you do your work in a way that's how i got to know a lot of elements of business and then i started talking more externally then i was able to, you know, be able to speak to high-profile people in the biggest investment banks in the world, running their own, you know, desks at investment banks, traders, etc. And that was awesome. So that was a huge, steep learning curve. Mm. But when I learned internally, it gave me the confidence to go externally. Externally, I had the gift of the gab, could sort of do that consultative sales approach, and then things sort of started to to get in in fall into place then i truly felt as though okay now i kind of know what everything's about investopedia yes that helped a lot google yes that helped a lot but it was mostly the the people that i was talking to and and the the, the fact of the matter that it was a financial publication so we were selling products but we we're also selling like thought leadership bespoke publications so yeah. i had at my fingertips like for example deloitte's you know, 2018 top M&A deals and forecast, which was really awesome. And just just reading through all of our past publications was incredibly, you know, um, great for gaining that knowledge. So then, then you, make, you make another jump, right? So you go from mm-hmm. um, finance to your current business that you've been running, Um with your brother. Yeah. So tell me the background, how you got into that business. So, so before I jump into that, the last, the second part of the second chapter, so first part was like a big financial MNC merger market. Then I did jump, I jumped into private equity. So that was a, another huge part of my learning. Um, because 
that was when I really got into it, private equity investments. And what I know of the finance field, when you get into private equity, those two words, you're like kind of at the top in the sense that a lot of people in the finance industry do want to do private equity investments. Why is that? Because I would say that you see things from a very different angle. So a lot of investment bankers, they like it, but it's a huge grind, right? And they're trading, you're doing different things, and you're a cog in the wheel. Private equity, you're the ones who are constructing the car. You're not really in the engine of it. Some people like obviously staying within that and you're, you're, you're paid very well, but the hours are crazy. Whereas in private equity, you take a step back and you kind of look at the whole world and you make an investment or you evaluate that and you look for opportunities and you really can change a lot of the world, right? Whereas an investment banking is, and can be very day-to-day. Of course, it depends on what element of investment banking you're in. I don't want to generalize, but I had felt just my personal experience in that thrust into the world of finance when I had told people in finance what I do. Oh, I'm working for a family office, which is uh, basically the off personal office of a high net worth individual. And I'm making investments on their behalf. And then they're like, oh, wow. So I kid you not, everyone that I talked to within finance or my friends who are in finance, who I had previously served in terms of the coffee industry, and they say, oh, now you're in private equity. They're like, what the heck? Like, and I, and it's funny, it's like snakes and ladders, you know, the game. It's like I went from the bottom, I mean, not to say it's the bottom, but I'm just saying it felt like from an industry angle, took the ladder straight up to the top, sort of skipping the in-betweens in that sense. Um, I was very fortunate. So anyway, I had done that and, and that was integral into my corporate network. So why do you think you got into this role? Um, because it, as you said, it's something that a lot of people want to get into. What, uh, looking at sort of in, in hindsight, what, what made you so special that you were the one to go into the PE? So what they needed at the time was, um, I didn't know it back then, but it was very clear to me now. Um, I think my sales um, acumen, my business development consultative sales, was very strong because of Pacific Coffee and Merger Market. And then obviously my executive MBA as well too. So it made me comfortable to speak, comfortable to speak with high-level professional C-suites. So that, when you're in a room and you're trying to look for deals and opportunities, that's what investors ultimately do. They seek good deals, good opportunities to invest in. That's, that's what they do, right? And then they hope to get a return from that within a certain amount of years. So what at the time, what they needed was someone who had a big network. So I had a big network across all corporates, international as well too. And they needed someone who was personable enough to, I don't know, I would to say like just talk to people at a high level that at the same time win their trust. Because if you are an entrepreneur and you're about to get investment from an investor, you're going to want to know where the money's coming from. You're going to want to know that they're credible, you know that they're not going to screw you over somehow. So there's a lot of trust that, that's needed. So I think that off the bat, I personal, my personality is very gen, genuine authentic, authentic. And I had a, a good network. The last thing that's funny, because the guy who hired me, 
um, his name's Francis. Uh, he said, and because we were we were at the time looking at three candidates, you, a private banker, and an investment banker, and you were the cheapest. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's, I mean, that's being very honest, right? Yeah, it is. And so, you know, he had to be, you know, a bit more frugal in, in terms of what he was getting, but he took the risk because I didn't have the financial, the solid, solid financial background that those two other guys had. Um, in the end, I stayed for three years, which shows that, you know, I stayed longer than Francis, and, and so... Not to say that he was bad, but I'm just saying that I stayed at a legit amount of time where it was not just like a fluke, right? I had added value, right? So I think that was the combination. So, you know, you could say uh, right spot, right time, um, but I would say probably consultative sales, comfortable being around C-suite, even though I was like, you know, decades younger. Um, my network, that was a big, probably the biggest thing. Yeah, so I want to talk about the last thing that you mentioned because you have mentioned this a few times, your network, um, and, and kind of uh, tie this, um, uh, um, kind of look into that um, proximity effect, right? Because I've been, uh, I'm really uh, intrigued by this. So Hong Kong, for those people who have never been to Hong Kong, Hong Kong is a fr- like a pressure cooker. It's, it's a really small city, um, a lot of mountains, I think 70% is just not, not flat, so there's only 30% to build on, probably less. So everyone lives in those very condensed areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that there are pros and cons, right? Um, so I'm really intrigued by how proximity in terms of distance, right? Because you've been talking about um, networking quite a lot. How Hong Kong, how, how that works here. Now, for that, for those people that have never been to Hong Kong into the networking, because this is something that's actually, I think, very unique to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I would say that the most immediate thing is you can get to any. So, if you're in the business district already, which is the CBD Central Business District, which for for Hong Kongers spans between um, Causeway Bay, Wan Chai, Admiralty, Central Shenghuan, pretty much. That's four to five subway stations apart. From one end to the other, it probably takes at most 12 minutes, not even. Just on this, like on the subway line, Causeway Bay to Shenguan. Now, that in and of itself makes things incredibly accessible. I would say probably the best thing about Hong Kong, and it's a, it's a sales sort of pitch for people who don't know Hong Kong, is that people are so willing to meet because of how accessible it is to meet. So, you know, prior to COVID, face-to-face, and after COVID, we'll still do that. And I I still do that because we're lucky in Hong Kong. And for me, the networking, there's events all the time, nonstop, always happening in Hong Kong. And so when you're stacked on building upon building, floor upon floor, it's very easy for someone to take a, a lift just out, go to a bar, go to a coffee shop, wherever that is, and just go and be there probably within, no matter where you are within the central business district, within 20 minutes. So I found that that was really beneficial in my career and that I was just open to, I mean, young, I w- I'm an athlete, I love running. So, I mean, I can walk to any meeting. I can, you know, being, being on the commute was never an issue to me, even in, this, in the hot summer of Hong Kong. And so I think that's probably the biggest contributor of the network effect in regards of Hong Kong. You're just 
never far away from your next meeting and people are always willing to take meetings with you? Yeah, so to put that in context, so I used to live in London and um, I remember if you, I mean, if you would plan things well, you could probably make two appointments a day. Um, that's pretty much max because the traffic is just the distance is just is is terrible. In Hong Kong, you could easily pack four or five meetings, and then they fast, right? It's not like a two hour meeting, uh, and that's how efficient Hong Kong is. It's and and everyone that surprised me. I don't. I like to hear your view on that. But everyone who do, that you meet in a bar or cafe or network event, and they say, oh, "Let's meet tomorrow." They they, you will meet them tomorrow. It's not like they just say it. Uh, in some places, I've heard you now people just say things and then you follow up and they don't know you the next day anymore. Mm-hmm. In Hong Kong, they really want you. They want you to meet. Mm-hmm. Right? They're really proactive in that. Mm. It was very. It was such a pleasant experience. Of course, um, you have to have a certain approach. Of course, um, I would say. Even when I was younger, in my early days in Pacific Coffee. The one thing that I really loved is that everyone that I talked to had their opinion on coffee. It's a global conversation topic. And selling coffee, I'm not saying that it's easy, but it's it's very it's an icebreaker. It's a it's a door opener. And and most people can relate to it because I just turned the top I'm not going to sell you. I'm going to ask you what your preferences are, where do you go, etc. And more often than not, probably eight times out of 10 when I had said, oh, I work for Pacific Coffee, it was always well-received because it's a homegrown coffee company, which felt also like an overseas sort of Starbucks as well too. So you had a good mix of both. That helped me a lot in terms of opening doors for my network. Now, with regards to um, what you said, people willing to take meetings, oh yeah, like that was, that has always been, such a good thing. And I think that's a reason why Hong Kong is so fast paced as a bit of a pressure cooker, because what I found that you're so, it's so easy to take meetings, but the challenge is always the follow-ups afterwards. And, you know, you, you end up giving yourself so much more work, right? Because you're taking all these meetings. It's great, but you've got to have follow-up as well too. Right. Um, but I found that, you know, as I got used to it, then the, the beauty of that is just the connections you make and, you're always a, a a degree apart from someone else that you want to meet. I mean, it, there is. I don't know if uh, why that is in Hong Kong, but I think there's a certain attitude that that people just seem to follow. Like I, I suggested, well, I was it two days ago, three days ago? Uh, let's talk about a particular subject. Well, let's talk about you in this podcast. And say, oh yeah, let's do it. And and basically, two three day, three days later, here we we sit in the studio. Yeah. Um, and. I mean, and and that's that's not an exception that that happens. I can just call people on my phone. Hey, let's go for coffee, and then hour later we have a coffee. That's because you're Oscar. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> because who's, I who's know going to turn you down, man? <laughs> I know that you have this as well, right? <laughs> I don't know. You plan probably. We had this in the last podcast about planning, but um, how many spontaneous meetings do you have, or do you really plan this ahead? I I mean I have uh, do I plan a lot? Yes, I, f- I have it on my calendar and stuff. Um but I find that I can I can snap things up and and have meetings with people easily. That's the that's the beauty of it. I think it's a balance, it's a healthy balance between how you communicate your positioning as to why you want to meet 
I think that it's it's not just like anyone's going to take a meeting with you, right? Mm-hmm. People are probably more willing to because they're more. I would say the keyword is opportunistic here. So uh, did you, so when you were sending an email out, so you had a particular structure to that, yeah. Right. So how how would you start your email? Or not in terms of the exact words, but how would you structure this? Usually, what happens is I probably do. I have to do a decent amount of research about who I'm wanting to meet. So I make things relevant for them. So I will be very, and this is sometimes even, no, LinkedIn was still there. So what I would do is maybe look at their feed and see what they've liked and what they've commented on in the past. Obviously, I look at their profile to understand what deals they're doing. So depending on what role I was in, so merger market, I would look at the deals they were involved in. I would research our own database to see, oh, this partner at this firm was was last doing this deal. That firm had just hired these people, etc. So in my email, I would already have breadcrumbs of the research, mentioning that thing in the first part of the body of the of the, of the text. Then I would send something directly relevant to them. So if there's a partner in charge of China M and A, I would say, "Oh, we just recently published something in China M and A. Here you go, mm. right?" And they're like, "Oh, interesting. Okay, so valuable to them." And then I would say, "Listen, I'm going to be here." which I would know where their office was at around this time for the next couple of days or whatever, I would love to have a coffee with you. Just pop on down. Like, so there's the coffee coming in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and, and I found, you know, and so I found that that's probably the structure of a lot of my emails in the coffee days, specific coffee. It was a little bit different, but still similar. Um, it's funny because I came up with a strategy whereby I realized that, so this is strategic sales. I didn't even know I was doing it. Strategically, I said, when do companies buy new coffee machines? When they relocate. When they sign a new lease and they relocate to a new building. And once they do that, they of course, they, they kind of toss out or evaluate whether their old coffee machine is worth moving or not. So that's when they think about it, right? If they're running the, a normal day-to-day business, they're not going to have a reason to replace a coffee machine unless it's broken or something. But you can't guess that. So for me, on the, other, on the other side of it, I would then say, hey, I know a lot of real estate guys. I know when the office leases are coming up. Why don't I partner with them and have a good timing so they can kind of feed me some leads as to when some companies might be moving? And then that was the way I approached it. So that was like a strategic sale. So I knew prospect lists for the next six months. It's interesting that you mentioned this because with the um, co-working space, right? That, uh, you need a refill? Yeah, that uh, I've been running. We actually looked into something similar, right? So, how do you catch people at the right moment, or and in, in, in well, ideally, just before they start thinking of it, right? Yeah, exactly. That, that's 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 where you want to be. So, we actually looked at relocation as well, because of course of co-working space, mm-hmm. um, especially in SME level. When, when the lease was coming up. Because in Hong Kong, there's typically a two-year lease, two to four, depends. So, some leases, bigger offices are bigger, mm-hmm. uh, are longer. But yeah, it's typically two years. So yeah, we, we've been looking at it as well. So how do you reach out to those people? Because that, that's probably right. the hard work, yeah. how do, to identify those companies and then who's responsible for it to make that decision. And the good thing about Hong Kong is that leases come up pretty quickly. Like people don't want to just sit still and take up a space for like 10 years. Like they kind of want to move and be, I don't know why that is, but it just seems as though like there are some commercial office spaces or you just kind of know there's always someone moving. 
yeah. somewhere or another, like either personally or from an office standpoint or, or something. So it's a very active, both financial, legal, and real estate industry. It, it's a big the, industry. And, yeah. and imagine if you sign a lease for two years, you need to start thinking about moving almost <laughs> like a year before, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're only one year in. And then you start thinking, What's the, are we going to stay here? And if we're going to move, then we need to find something and then you need to plan a few months ahead in terms mm-hmm. of relocation and computers and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's like, an, it really is ongoing. It's very dynamic. Thinking about that, yeah. And going back to, so talking about relocation, I'm going to answer the first question that you had, the, or the, the other question, which was, how did I get from the financial to what I'm doing now? So the, that was the, that whole, what we talked about was the second chapter. The third chapter and, and the chapter that I'm on right now is the entrepreneurial chapter. Mm-hmm. That was so I had 10 plus 10 years of corporate experience. And then I think it was my 11th year, I embarked 2019 on my entrepreneurial chapter. How did that start? That, that started when I realized at my private equity gig um i didn't want to do that anymore there was a bit of an internal change in terms of what my description job description would be so i just said you know what you know it's i think it's it's a healthy time to to move on and i joined a startup in bangkok thailand and i was a bit of a consultant but i kind of joined them as well too it was a bit of a mix of both and that was my first real foray into understanding what it meant to to grow a business from pretty much nothing uh, they were there. They started probably, you know, I think it was a year before I had arrived or just under. Um, it was a fashion e-commerce uh, startup. And I had to play the role of, in a way, COO or deputy CEO. So what attracted you to that job? Because that's like, it's it's like black and white. Yeah. Like going from PE to startup. And not, not, not on, it's not in Hong Kong. It's overseas. Well, yeah. in Thailand, which is next door, but still. It was... A mix of, it was an itch that needed to be scratched. So, and it was scratched by a gentleman who uh, was a was a CEO. Um, very, very convincing. And he said all the right things. And it was, I was like, you know what? To me, in my mind, I was like, let me just try something new. I've only been in Hong Kong, right? Let me try and... See what that is. I talked to to Patty about it, and she said, "No, it's a good opportunity. Why don't you give it a try?" And um, how startup startup was this business? I would probably say that I was told it was the product, which the app was sixty percent done, but it's probably more like twenty percent done. It was pretty like they had a team, right? But we had we were in the midst of so that we had the IT programming team to develop the app. What that's what it was it was a platform. And then we had a few existing um, operation team members. But while I was there, I was still hiring other people as well too. So yeah, it was really, really early. They had a tiny bit of a start of a skeleton of what it could be. But there was a lot of iteration, a lot of you know back testing, a lot of bug debugging. And then other than that, it was like getting licensed, getting certified, talking to lawyers, getting lawyers, then talking about formulating um, and then the the first round of funding that we needed as well. So my role ended there with uh, completion of the financing of the of the sort of the seed round, right? And that was very very tough, but very rewarding. But that had continued to that was I call it a startup boot camp, but really put put me through 
um, what I need to learn. And that's at the time I had already started my mental health and well-being Bay Vita. So while I was in Bangkok, this was running. But thankfully, Julian, my twin brother, was running that. And then when I was doing that in, in Thailand, it was pretty much impossible for me to do that business, to do Bay Vita. Once I had stopped the one in Thailand, then I went in Bay Vita full on. And that was probably 2019, um, probably the uh, Q3, Q4. Was that something you had in mind when you were going to Thailand? Okay, I'm going to do the seed funding and then I'm going to reconsider at least with you what my next step is? Or was it during that process realized, okay, this is where I can add value and after that I think I need to rethink this? Yeah, I wasn't going in it with the expectation to leave so soon because I'd only really spent four or five months there. Um, luckily, those four or five months were extremely valuable and taught me a lot of lessons. Um, but I didn't have in I didn't have it in mind to. I had actually thought that I was going to be able to do both. And being ambitious, you know, young, and you're just like, yeah, I can do both for sure. But it definitely wasn't because you can do a corporate job with something on the side, but you can't do two startups at the same time. That's impossible. It's totally impossible. And there's one that's going to suffer. It's not getting your attention. And I ultimately thought to myself, I wanted to start Bay Vita for a reason. And I want to do it with my brother. And I felt really bad that I couldn't do it with him. And so that's why when I when I finished the fundraising, I said, okay, we're going to go Bay Vita. Let's go full in and, and do it and do it right. So how did you get involved with with the business of, of your brother? So he, Vita? Yeah, because he start, Julian started this. Yeah, no, we both started together. It was a good mix and it was um, my, it's a joint venture business. So my brother and I own part of the business and then our joint venture partner, which is um, Bay Capital, has the other one, the other part of it. And Big Capital is a real estate investment fund. And they have hotels and a medical building. And originally the business was supposed to be positioned as just a... So you actually actually were running a fund. Yeah, so that was the other part. Like that wasn't our business, but that was my partner's business. And we were just brought in as Julian was the health guy. I was the entrepreneur, business development, corporate guy. Julian and I always wanted to start this business together, but then it was the catalyst that that conversation with Bay Capital happened. And the the chairman and the founder of Bay Capital, Colin, um, saw something in us. And he said, listen, I have never come across twins. Okay? Are you identical twins? We're fraternal twins, but we look very, very similar. We And when you hear us speak, it's the same voice. Uh, my parents, like we could trick our parents with the voice, but that's about it. Anyway, when he had said, I've never worked or probably will ever work with twins who are Canadian, Chinese. One is in Asia. One is in Toronto and in North America. One is in health. One is in business. And that mix together was just like a perfect mix for something to happen originally we julian and i just wanted to consult colin and say hey listen we want to consult your hotel businesses and help them be repositioned for a more health and wellness sort of target in that sense in terms of a 
target market because it was a you know four star boutique hotel. So that was originally what we wanted to do. And then he said, no, 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 I don't want to just have you as consultants. I see much more value in this longer term. Colin is a very longer term visionary kind of guy. And he saw that. And um, he said, nope, I want this to be a joint venture. I want you guys to buy into it. I want you guys to take ownership of it. You know, don't just sort of do your job, you know, you know, clear the, the dust and then move on. And that's kind of how it started. And, and so things started that way and then they continued. And then we then moved into, because of COVID, corporate health and wellness. So we couldn't do the hotels because they had to shut down temporarily. Um, and that's how we got into the corporate stuff. And that was more leveraging my background. So there, it was a very even, a very strong um, opportunity. And working with my brother has been great. So for a lot of people who have hesitation working with family members, um, the, the short answer and the probably the most typical answer is it depends, which I hate giving that answer, but it really does. And Julian and I have had ups and downs, but I think the biggest thing that we would probably say is we, we have a both ability to take a step back and say, hey, why are we doing this? You know, what do we want to get out of it? And it changes over time like our, our own thoughts on that. So we communicate on almost a daily basis. We kind of set rules, like kind of guidelines for each other. Like Julian set a rule just recently. He said, okay, anything WhatsApp call tech, uh, WhatsApp calls um, or vi- WhatsApp videos is personal. Anything Zoom, we have to set like a Zoom meeting is going to be work-related. So let's not get it twisted. Like if we are on a WhatsApp Let's try our best not to just go into work mode. Let's make that as a personal thing. So we have to strike the balance as co-founders, but also as brothers as well, too. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting mix, right? Uh, to Well, I mean, this, it's, inter, uh, it's intertwined, I would say, right? You have the personal mix with the business. Um, and, and that can be good and bad, I guess, uh, simultaneously. Have you ever tried... No, I mean, uh, the closest I've been to is uh, helping my wife out making cookies. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and to turn it well? <laughs> I wouldn't laugh too loud. Uh, she may actually <laughs> listen to this. But no, it, that was, um, let's say, it was a <laughs> interesting experience. You know the Sunday market, right? In, yeah. Uh, yeah. On the Hong Kong Islands. And uh, she, I, I mean, she's an amazing chef. So she, she has talent for, for cooking. And um, at the time, she was uh, really interested in making um, uh, cookies. I I just don't know how to do that. I mean, um, but I said I'll help you out, right? With 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 the branding, and I'll just prepare stuff. But um, yeah, that didn't. I mean, we did it for I don't know one or two Sundays. I can't remember. Maybe maybe more. Okay. But it it it's it. I think it was a good experience for her to kind of. Also, experience what entrepreneurship is. Mm. You know, it's, I it mean, you can't really make money out of cookies, mm. to be honest. And the scale, right? Unless you sell a million cookies, then yeah, you, you can sell it. But yeah, uh, I've, I've tried. I would not recommend. Maybe, I mean, if I, if I were to have a brother, which I don't have, um, maybe brothers and sisters are different. Yeah, perhaps. Than, than working with uh, your spouse. Oh, yeah, yes. I, I, 
funny because like even just when we mentioned earlier just doing the podcast with patty that felt like a little work right it felt like okay let's put our serious face on you know stop talking like cute talk to me and each other and all that and then let's actually be serious about it um it's rare because you don't you for me at least we don't talk about like for example i never call her patty that was weird for me to say patty i would say hey hun honey darling sweetie like that you know you don't say hi patty and like that just sounds so weird even when i yell out in public to to get her attention i I rarely say like i have to say patty then because you know if i say hey honey and then i have like you know five other you know women or men turn around But but it was, it was really a little awkward. I we had a bit of a learning curve when we started doing the podcast. So to work with each other, I think would say it'd be a little bit different as well too with your spouse. Um, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but doing it with my brother right now, um, we've sort of found a groove. We know exactly what what buttons to press to not to to get to each other. We had the you know that storming and norming that first um steps into getting relationships before we start to do the performing part of it and then um but that's all the part of it right and if we can I create so. something yeah. that survives and then so doing it you know for us it's more of like for me personally it's just um i used to play a lot of sports with my brother right we used to play just the two of us as twins right as having a sibling is awesome like that and this is just like another sport except we're building something meaningful for a lot of other people so i want to talk also a little bit more about what you actually do with this well-being uh business um because you now we've we've talked about those three chapters mm-hmm. um they seem i guess they kind of related to each other if you will talk through transitions but they are quite very distinct different chapters um and going from let's say pe to well-being seems another sort of um jump why well-being um so i think the probably the biggest um rationale was most likely from a topic or subject matter rationale was because of my brother julian's a health coach personal trainer coach right so that's his wheelhouse that's what he does well right he's really good at that for me you know as as i said earlier in my career you know selling coffee i was fundraising i was selling data products and events sponsorships so you put something that i can sort of stand behind and get passionate about yeah i can sell it um and and not to say that well-being is just one of the other products and services but the reason why i think i attach myself so much into wellness and well-being is because i think i've been through the corporate life and i've had enough experience to understand what it's like and at different levels and different environments where i've kind of been a bit of a um i feel as though through evidence and through actual living it out i've been an expert on what it's like to live a healthy or an unhealthy life in the corporate world because I've worked in large and small organizations. I've worked in the startup, I've worked in the investment side, you know, and and so I I know kind of what that feels like and so I feel as though personally I can I can give a lot 
of examples and sort of feel empathetically what it's like to be in people's shoes. I don't know the subject matter of wellness 100% like my brother does, but I think I can, hearing it through him, then filtering it out into a, a corporate setting and the people and the employees, I think they really um, appreciate that. And that's kind of where I've fallen into it. I had gone through a bit of a burnout like with the Thailand with the boot camp, startup boot camp. That was an experience that I had faced. And I was like, man. Was that really in burnout? Because that yeah. was four or five months. It was right? four or five months, but it was intense, man. It was it was boot camp. And what was so intense? I mean, Hong Kong is an intense place. So yeah. what was more intense about that? Because it was new, it was a different environment, everything together. What was so intense? Yeah, about it was it? a combination of all of them. It was with an unrelenting, you know, boss. But you have to kind of be like that sometimes. Like I don't think you have to, but I think that was just his style. The second is a new environment. So Bangkok, Thailand, it's a totally new environment. New food, new air, uh, new new environment. Number three, not knowing anybody there as well too. So your support network was, I didn't have one. It was just all from a proximity. It was all distanced. They didn't feel a sense of belonging. It was just day-to-day grinded out like from Point A to point B was everything related to the to the startup, right? There was no even if I wanted to have time to the, to myself on a weekend, it was just time to myself. But it, but I couldn't escape work because that was all that was on my mind. And so I reached a point where I probably the, what were the symptoms? I noticed tr- more when I was dreading. In fact, afraid and anxious to go to work the next day. Didn't know what to expect. I knew I had a shitload of stuff to do that I hadn't done. I didn't know how to do it. Um, and then also when I got to work, not knowing what new things would be put on me, what new problems would arise, um, and not really knowing the lay of the land at all. It's like, you know, understand regulations in Southeast Asia. Understand the legal frameworks. Read these these like total new documents that I have no idea, but talk to a new culture of people that I've never spoken to before, right? All those things mixed together was like so much all at once. And there was such a drive to grow so quickly, right? And I think a lot of startups can be like that, but also I think it's just the way that I wasn't my expectation to what a reality was, was just a bit far off. And so that, that was not something you expected. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was not. I was expecting, and then also being away from like my wife, my family, as well, and my friends. You know, physically unable to sort of spend time with them to chill. It was tough. You know, but um, I learned a lot. It's like you learn a lot from the things that make you feel the most uncomfortable, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sometimes it does. But uh, no, I, I have. I guess I can share that experience as well, right? It's pretty intense to yeah. to, and I I wonder if it's actually a good thing. But that, that that maybe it's a different discussion. Whether for my burnout, I would say that it it gave me a sense of okay, like I know what it. I know have a feeling of what it's like for some people at a a very anxious, stressful part in terms of work. And unable to find balance, and I was working out. I was doing, trying to do things to really balance myself. So, w- w- was it just that were other people aware of this, or was that internally? 
you felt this building up that you one thing that you keep mentioning is the sort of uncertainty about what was going to happen and then plus that now everything was new you had no clue how to figure things out because it just takes time yeah so there was a lot of a lot of people we had a pretty diverse international team mostly from southeast asia um and it's funny because they kind of become your family right you're you were adopted into this family and they kind of all feel the same way right it's funny um what was the question just more in in so the question was internally you you noticed this yeah. at the time yeah were other people aware of this oh right um yeah i think a lot of people knew that because i was stepping into this role and the, again the expectation like the way that the the boss had expressed it you know this is a guy from hong kong and he knows he's business savvy kind of guy mba you know all that stuff and people knew i had a big role to play and i think that they knew what i was going through but they didn't know how to help me well, why would you say that they they're like yeah it's like that when you first start and a lot of us kind of went through something similar like to that but because you're thrust into something that as as a high level as you are to sort of you can call it deputy ceo you can call it chief of staff you can call it whatever right hand of the ceo i was in a different position whereby my responsibility was just literally the right hand of the ceo right and i think that the other people on the team they knew kind of what it felt like cuz they had gone through but they didn't know because their roles are very different right so for example someone in operations who was dealing with one part of the business was like i know how you feel but i don't have to deal with like i have to deal with maybe one and two out of your 10 things but i have no idea what 3 4 5 6 79 are nor do i have the expectation to deliver that right so i think that it was that managing your expectations um that other people couldn't really see eye to eye with me not eye to eye so they couldn't sympathize they had an idea but they're like well your expectations are a lot higher than mine so mm. i think that maybe even just as a lesson to myself like don't push myself too high from an expectation level right yeah i just wonder right so okay. uh, it's your first it was your first um experience to startup life uh, i don't think it's unique because it, it, there's a lot of founders first time founders yeah. uh, startup uh, employees go through this this phase of of course uh, people it's really hard to explain to people because uh, the when i was employing for for startups i said experience that everything will go wrong right mm-hmm. experience environment where i just don't know what what's going to happen and multiply that by 10 mm-hmm. right and when you say people say oh because it, they, there is this sort of romantic um i don't know a romantic description of a startup yeah. right but freedom and doing crazy things and all that stuff which is maybe it's part of that so i don't know your experience of going in a startup but if you had time to kind of do all those crazy stuff that you otherwise wouldn't do in a corporation um but that's probably only a really small part right it's over overemphasized mm-hmm. in startups so it's i think the the grinding part the 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 ongoing pressure of in this case the seed funding mm-hmm. 
is high. It's just really, yeah, it's hard to describe. I would, I would probably say to any entrepreneurs, um, co-founders, founders of startups, know what your team needs to be inspired and to be motivated to keep going. Oftentimes, leaders may think, if I give you an environment that is very pleasing and very comfortable, then you might perform. Maybe. On the opposite end, some leaders might say, I need to light a fire under your ass. And I need to, I need to yell. I need to give you some negative motivation in order to get you to actually buy into it and feel a sense of urgency. But I would, I would suggest to all entrepreneur leaders who are managing their teams, know individual know your teammates in their in, as an individual and what it takes to get them to buy into whatever you're doing this the whole mission and the purpose and it could be through positive reinforcement it could be through negative reinforcement it could be both but if you don't know that you will push people to the edge and and maybe in in not the best way mm. and that's what had happened to me um i was pushed um, which rightly so as a startup, you, you need that urgency. You need someone to give you that direction to say, hey, keep going, keep going, keep going. But if it's in how they do it, right? If they do it in a way where, where they say certain things to you that motivate you in a positive way, okay, if that's, what I re- if that's how I receive it and that's what gets me going, that's great. There's alignment there. But if it's maybe done in a negative way where some people actually really thrive off of negative um, reinforcement then but if there's a misalignment then you're off to something really really dangerous perhaps mm-hmm. right so it's like i would suggest for startup founders to assess somehow uh, there are a lot of tools out there there's a lot of activities you can do it's very easy to do that but just have a good talk with whoever you are hiring and in, in these pivotal roles to make sure hey I just want to know, like Oscar, like, am I saying the right things that are going to get you to do and perform and outperform? Give me 120, 130%. Like, what do I need to say to get you there? Or tell me what has happened in the past that got you there, right? Not assume. I, I guess that's when you're talking, uh, when you look in, in hindsight to what you did in, in Thailand, and we'll move on from that as well. But uh, when you were persuaded to go to Thailand, what was that image that you had in your head? Because that must have been different. The first thing that I had thought, so a lot of things was, I couldn't, I can't just uh, blame it on uh, the startup. So there were a lot of things that were changing. So we'll take it back to, you know, moment of history, 2019, quarter four, that started October, November, December. That was the height of the Hong Kong protests. And that had a big impact as well on, my ending of this experience because i was there 2019 summertime and the protest started in the summertime right it was june i would say most of the things started and so the the impact that that had had was that i didn't know when i first signed on to this it was before the protest happened so i was like okay hong kong's good traveling's fine you know my wife was fine and then I got to Bangkok and it was all good. She actually came out. I was able to go back a few times. You know, it's fine. But then the protest started and then it became a little bit like unsettling. You know, what's happening to Hong Kong? Oh my goodness. Everyone was kind of like that. 
So it was a bit of a unique circumstance that, that I would say it was not a normal situation whereby the the safety of your spouse, your friends and your family, you know, in the Hong Kong protests at the time. And so that was a little bit of something else in the back of my mind. So when I first got into this role, it was just like, oh, you know what? I'm going to make trips back and forth every now and then. And and that was a little bit of lip service that the, the founder gave to me to make me feel settled. Mm. And it wasn't actually the case. So I had to, obviously as a startup, you got to really be on the ground. There's no, there was no opportunity for travel unless it was a meaningful business, really, really big business uh, decision or meeting that you're going to have. So that was probably the, the biggest difference from before starting and actually working. So how do you deal with like well-being at the moment? Now if you look at your current role, um, that you have also no, again business owner in this case uh, what have you changed for me I would say having a core team so important um, we have four core team members um, Julian Morgan Lydia and myself um, global uh, San Francisco Toronto and Hong Kong and and that's important because we've become core team members but also able to trust each other as sort of friends but push each other along the way as um, subject matter experts in our own right also having a really good business partner so Colin and Bay Capital kind of keep things at a arm's length they don't micromanage or anything and just as long as you you know there's a belief there's someone that's always in your corner right so how, how do you communicate with each other if there's like this proximity or distance yeah for kind of people that you work with we have um, sort of bi-weekly calls with each other. Uh, we have a WhatsApp group. We do have Slack as well, uh, emails. So as of right now, I think the, most co- in the, the biggest thing is probably consistency and sharing with each other things because we're all very intimately, you know, we're passionate about this space. You know, so when something comes to mind, we'll just share it to the group. It's a bit of a sharing group and then... You know, we think about what we have. And I think that I wasn't originally the CEO. Like, I wasn't really that. I was more of BD guy, right, with the business. Eventually, I took the reins. And I think people, the team, the core team members sort of realized, like, okay, you know what? Like, Nathan's really driving it. Let's, let's, let's hoist him up together. That made me feel really good. Do you think a business needs that of that size? Do, do you need to have a CEO? I think it helps to have someone to defer to. Um, I say that because it, it's it's actually um, more clear to other people, to external. Yeah, and that's interesting. And that's also probably why I'm asking this. Yeah, so for us specifically, it's important in that I think the the other core team members know okay, that it's on my shoulders and I'll do it. But there's no, how do you say, everyone will still do their part. It's like playing a point guard quarterback on a team. I think it helps to give structure and direction. I don't think all startups, do they need that? Good question. Um, well, and what may, maybe because it's it's such a kind of, uh, loaded title, right? Um, yeah, 
Yes. It, it's it's and yeah, I've had discussions with other people. So in this case, I'm a CEO of a business, but it's a small business and startup as well. But I just want uh, it, to your point, especially in Hong Kong, which is still very traditional. They want to, of course, talk to whoever they believe makes the decisions, and that's the CEO, yeah. which is not always true, right? But, um, but t- title does matter. It does, and uh, to me, it's just more of like everyone on the team kind of knows and. No one said anything when I changed my email signature to CEO, you know, like no one cared. Um, but it was more of like um, there was a bit of an understanding that I kind of played that role anyway. And everyone has an idea to know because I think the biggest thing is the reason why is because I have the relationship with a joint venture partner. Right. And, and, and they hold me accountable being in Hong Kong. I don't know if it would have worked differently if I was not in Hong Kong, but I think that just because I'm the the bridge between my team mem- core team members and then a joint venture partner, that makes it easier for us to communicate this way. Um, but you know what? I'm, I think every business is different um, and just the way that it is. But from an external standpoint, I think you're right. Like in Hong Kong, especially in Asia, it matters. People want to you know. Yeah. The... The other question I have is, is what do you do for yourself in terms of well-being, right? Um, I mean, how do you keep yourself healthy? Apart from, you, I know you exercise, but that's more physical exercise. So mm-hmm. what I'm in, in, interested in is, is more your mental state. How, how do you keep that healthy? Great question to, to sort of end off the session. I would say that... Um, our belief is that everything's intertwined. Just because I'm doing a physical activity doesn't mean that it's just physical. Right? If I go for a hike or go for a run and go for a sweat, it is very, very, very mental. Right. So when I go for a long workout, I am mentally spent because I'm driving myself in terms of, okay, your body is your machine functioning, but your brain is a control center. And you've got to kind of think of like, okay, motivate yourself don't stop now keep going make sure you breathe make sure you get your water you know it's only so far you know think of what's going to happen when you're at home and showered and relaxed you know so there's so much mental stuff happening so when i do my physical activities mentally i'm very focused and that helps me to actually not think about my to-do list you know that you don't write your to-do list but i do so it helps me take my mind off of other things because i have to be so focused imagine you're on a hike you're around 600 700 meters above sea level it's shining it's humid it's hot you're sweating you've got sunscreen in your eyes and you have water and and so all you can really think about is the moment so for me when i'm doing those things even on a run or a swim or whatever I, I only focus on that. And that actually really helps to take my mind off of all the thoughts that I have on my mind. Because as soon as I have a moment to really think about those things, everything comes rushing back in. But when I do physical activity, it really helps to do that. So uh, other things from a more mental standpoint would be that I would say is I like my wife and I like to play um, board games. So Chinese checkers is something that we play, ball GK. And that helps us to get really focused on the task at hand too. So it's using other mentally cognitive challenging tasks. So, for example, making coffee every day. That is my routine. And I will spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so 
picking my beans, grinding my beans fresh, setting up the water, boiling it, putting the V60 coffee filter in, pouring the grinds in, waiting for the temperature, soak, pre-soak, then soak, um, uh, preheating my cup, um, making, brewing the coffee, and then pouring the coffee. That whole routine is almost an everyday routine for me. And that's like my chunk or I just help myself to get started slowly, focusing on one task at a time. It's it's fascinating how you describe how you... So the way I see it, and, and, and record, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you, by doing other things, of course your mind goes starts thinking about other things, and therefore it's not necessarily distraction, but um, it, it moves you to a different position. Is this how you would deal with something that you in terms of mental agility and what I'm trying to get to is that if you face a problem you can go running for example right you still need to fix that problem Um, how would that help if you would start thinking about something else Uh, yeah Uh, it's really interesting I think I think what happens is if I have a problem or something that's really on my mind I think there are moments when you have to settle it there and then, for sure, make a decision, come to peace with it. Or there are some moments when I realize, hey, listen, is this really the best state of mind to think about this? Right? Like, am I going to get overly emotional from this email or this complaint or whatever? And and I make the choice. Do I respond right away emotionally? Or do I wait, go for a swim, go for a run, clear my head because my my because time it spaces things out so my emotional reactive brain sort of goes down i get relaxed i think about it again and then i'll respond differently so i think it's that judgment call i think that for me to practice those specific tasks like making coffee like cooking like playing sports or board games it allows my brain i think a lot of times to be able to to train itself to take it out of an emotional reaction to something. But also, you know, it's, I think just maybe over time, like judgment calls, like it's just all about that. It's so easy sometimes to respond um, very reactively. But if I can take myself and think, and I don't know exactly what that is, but over time, I think that my decision-making abilities have been able to be much better in in how I choose to react at that moment in that time. Yeah, so, so one thing I've noticed is that over the years, I actually make decisions a lot slower. I, I really take a lot of time um, for certain decisions, mm. like a lot mm. longer than, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and I don't know if that's good or bad, because sometimes it does, t- uh, I mean, things start building up, right? You do need to make a decision. But I've also noticed that sometimes it's actually better to take more time. I've yeah, and and in one other way of putting that, and when I think of my lens of like investments, there are some. If you miss out on an investment because you're late, it's fine. You know why? Because there's always going to be another opportunity. But if you make the wrong call at the right time, you think it's the right time then that's could be years of you know of a bad investment. So when I put it in that frame, 
And in that context, sometimes from an investment standpoint, it's actually better to make a slow decision and make the right one by not actually going into it than to make a rash decision and going into it haphazardly because of an emotional feeling. So I kind of think of things as that in that I think as we as we get older and more experienced and gain more wisdom, wisdom accelerator, um, <laughs> I couldn't help myself, um, then you, you get an idea that, okay, it's okay to take things slower. And you're at, like, I would much rather prefer to miss out on a the party than to get my, than to go to the party off a whim and get so shit faced and make a fool out of myself rather than going a little bit later or choosing the next party to go to afterwards or something like that. You know? So I maybe not the best con- example, but I see what you mean. And, and maybe I'm, it's like that for me too. But there are moments though that I do appreciate. And I think other people on the other side of the table appreciate quick decisions and, and, and a quick feedback. Um, and uh, you know, that, that is there, is there a science behind it? Is there much more of an art that I don't know? It's called life, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really, yeah, those decisions are hard. Yeah. Good. Um, let's wrap this up. I, um, um, I, I really enjoyed listening to you, um, uh, Nathan, because uh, it's, yeah, it's not often, um, that I do this. <laughs> Thank you. No, this is <laughs> like, and, 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 I've, and I think we should do this more. It's it's good to switch once in a while. Yeah, I really appreciate it, and it's like when I, when you first suggested, I was like, "Fuck, that's like a really nice thing to do," and that shows your character. It shows that you know you can think of things as you know from the other way uh, on the other side of the table, and um, it's good because I never would have really thought about it, you know, because it kind of feels like, hey. You know what? I should get someone to interview me. It feels a little bit narcissistic in a way and like, you know, I'm pumping my chest here. But for you to bring it up, and it was all Oscar's idea, by the way, everybody. It yeah, it was my idea because I know exactly how you feel. Uh, it's it's hard to invite someone else to interview you to talk about yourself, right? So that would be very narcissistic. Yeah. Um, so I thought I was just going to reach out to you. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate it a lot. And thanks for the thanks for the Alsace uh, Pinot Gris. All right, man. See you soon. See ya.